0: We have a quarterly meeting, which I lead, with all city agencies, whether or not they report to me. We're looking at citywide data for every agency. We're talking about citywide trends. We're pointing out those who are doing well and and celebrating that and sharing, and but also criticizing when things are not going well and, and asking it's like hard questions. Stat. Yeah, yeah, you know, I was going to say <laughs> it's yeah. like comps..
1: Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette.
2: I'm Carol Kellerman from Citizens Budget Commission.
1: You can find us at GothamGazette.com and CBC at CBCNY.org. We're on Twitter at Gotham Gazette and at CBCNY, and I'm at TweetBenMax. For those unfamiliar, Gotham Gazette is a watchdog news publication published by Citizens Union Foundation, and CBC is a nonprofit, nonpartisan fiscal watchdog. Uh, with a long-storied history. Um, on this podcast, we're teaming up to discuss all sorts of important public policy matters, uh, attempting to tackle some of the wonky material in more accessible conversation. So tell your friends, tell your colleagues, uh, tell your family about the podcast, what's the data point, point? and you can find us all over the place, including on iTunes and elsewhere. So, for the first time in our 10 episodes so far, we we're we're, are without Maria Doulis, who is now out for a while on maternity leave, so we wish her the best. We look forward to her return. But here today is Carol, the president of CBC, and uh, that's great that you're joining me, Carol. Glad to be here. <laughs> and we are joined by Richard Bury, Deputy Mayor for Strategic Policy Initiatives under Mayor Bill de Blasio. Welcome. Thank you. Thank for having me. And, uh... Richard oversaw the pretty universally applauded rollout of the universal pre-K program, so we'll maybe touch on that for a minute, but we're actually here to discuss something different. Our data point for today is 30%. Carol?
2: 30%. That is the share based on dollar value of city contracts to be awarded to minority and women-owned businesses in New York by fiscal year 2021. This would be an increase from the 14% awarded in fiscal year 2016. To meet this goal, the city is taking several steps, including one, creating a new mayor's office to serve as a one-stop shop for MWBEs to connect with city agencies and to coordinate with the work of other city offices responsible for procurement. Two, increasing the resources of the Mayor's Office of Contract Services and the Department of Small Business Services to fund capacity building programs and other free services to help strengthen MWBEs. Three, creating a new certification application for MWBEs to certify 9,000 businesses by 2019, and four, Improving the City Contract Financing Loan Program, a $10 million revolving fund that allows eligible MWBEs to apply for loans up to $500,000 with an interest rate of no more than 3%. To emphasize the importance of the new initiatives to the administration, the mayor has placed the deputy mayor for strategic policy initiatives in charge of the program, and he works closely with Janelle Doris, the new MWBE senior advisor. We will discuss this and other programs under the Deputy Mayor's supervision in this episode.
1: So thanks again for being here. Uh, Thank you, Carol, for that rundown. So we like to give people a bunch of information at the top, and then it follows, the discussion follows from there, so we'll get back to all that stuff. But at least we get all that information in people's ears once, and since we're talking complicated stuff, now they get to hear a little bit of it again from you. So This has actually been a topic of some controversy, and the mayor said, hey, i got to get one of my top people um, on top of things here. So you've been tasked with the mayor. We're almost a year from the creation of this new office and you being put in charge. So tell us where we're at.
0: Well, sure. First of all, again, thanks, Ben and Carol, for having me. And um, yes, the mayor wanted to put one of his top people on it, but they weren't available. So (laughs) So uh, unfortunately, uh, I (laughs) I have been given the charge, and... Uh, and it's great that you guys are doing this podcast. It's really interesting idea. I hope to be as compelling as cereal. Uh, so we can uh, get your ratings up. Um, yeah. So uh, as you said, you know the mayor announced this overarching goal of increasing utilization of minority and women businesses for city contracting to thirty uh, percent by the end of fiscal year twenty one. And by context, we were about eight percent when we came into office. We were fourteen uh, percent at the end of the prior fiscal year, fiscal year sixteen. Um, we haven't released fiscal year 17 numbers, but we will shortly, and um, uh, and so we are on a good trajectory, uh, and that is a trajectory that is going to, you know, it's going to go up and down because, as you can imagine, any given year, we're procuring different things, more things, fewer things. Uh, we might be procuring lots of things where there's lots of minority women businesses, and another year we might be procuring... Uh, things where there are fewer minority women businesses, so we expect it to go up and down. But a lot of the work here is about building the capacity of industry in New York so that year after year, where it will be more and more competitive in more and more industries. Uh, and it, it really gets to the heart of so much of what I think this administration is about and why I uh, joined uh, Bill de Blasio in this, uh, in this adventure in city government, because at the heart of, I think, everything that we do is really about creating a city that works for everyone. And that means a number of things. It means a city where everyone has uh, a place to live that they can afford. It means a city where everyone is safe regardless of what neighborhood you live in. It means a city where everyone has access to the best educational opportunities the country has to offer. But it's also a city where everyone has the chance to build wealth, everyone has a chance uh, to be successful in business. Um, and that really is at the heart of so much of what we do because if we really know we want to build a a truly just and equitable city, it's not enough to have a city that's doing a good job in delivering services. We have to have a city where people actually have a chance uh, to build wealth and grow wealth. And uh, particularly in this moment where in so many ways uh, people are under attack, whether it's people of color or women or uh, immigrants are under attack, uh, it's a good reminder that in this city, this is a city where we really have our doors open for everyone, uh, where immigrants uh, are the biggest cohort of small business owners in the city, uh, and we want to make sure in a place where, unfortunately, you know, opportunity hasn't really always been open to everyone. We want to do our part to make sure opportunity is open to everyone, and, and because the city is such a big buyer of things, uh, you know, we yeah, do over so
1: much—fifteen billion dollars
0: in contracts, absolutely. Right, about um, absolutely. So you know, because the city is such a big buyer of things part of our power is an engine of economic opportunity by making sure that we give everybody a chance to be a part of doing business with the city, by giving everyone a chance to share their expertise, their knowledge, their uh, know-how. That can conflict, though,
1: right? Correct me if I'm wrong. That can conflict with the fact that a lot of times you want to do things at really big scale, and a lot of times MWBEs are not at the same scale as companies and businesses that are not MWB, so that are white-owned.
0: So what is that tension? How are you managing that tension? What's Well, I, I think I, mean, I understand the question, but I think in some way that's a false tension, at least if you think about it in the long term. Because ultimately, the way to make sure that the city is doing the best job in delivering services to citizens is to have a robust set of business partners that we can work with to get that job done. As long as we have a city where the uh, big economic players don't really look like the city, we're losing out of those opportunities over the long term. So it may be true in the short term, it may not always be the efficient way to do business in the short term, but I can tell you over the long term, the more that you have more and more businesses that look more and more like everyday New Yorkers who are growing, who are competing with one another, the city will actually benefit in the long term. So for me, it's about investment. I mean, you're investing in things in the short term, in order to yield a payoff in the long term. Uh, you, know, you talked about pre-K before. I mean, it's a, to me, it's the same it's the same logic in the educational space. You invest in early child education so that young people are better able to succeed as they go through their educational careers. A lot of what we're doing is trying to develop and support small and emerging businesses, uh, and particularly businesses led by women and people of color, so that over time, they can grow, they can gain experience, they can learn what it's like to do business with the city and therefore have a chance. To uh, to compete for ever larger contracts and to do ever bigger work for the city,
1: and and so to contradict my own question a little bit, I mean one <laughs> of the one of the other aspects here though is you're not always buying things for the whole city. You're not always buying all the meals that will go into you know lunches in city schools. A lot of times, you're you're there's local projects. I mean, and is that where a lot of what you're looking for is to figure out. Who are, what are some of the more local, borough-based companies, smaller local community neighborhood uh, companies that can be cultivated, helped along, mm-hmm. grown, and and offered to compete for contracts? That's
0: right. Some of it is smaller projects, so not everything is you know, not everything is building Hudson Yards, right? So you know, it, so sometimes there are smaller projects, uh, and that's one way to engage emerging businesses. Um, but it's also about subcontracting uh, contracting opportunities, even on a big project. There are lots of opportunities, you know, the big business, a big contractor doesn't do everything on their own. So often there are subcontracting opportunities and part of it is working with our contractors to incentivize them to make sure that they're giving businesses in a distributed fashion. um, To hold them accountable for making sure that they are uh, looking near and far for businesses that can help do that work. So, and and also those, sometimes those subcontractors over time, they get that experience can then become bigger and become contractors, prime contractors down the road. So, yeah, part of, part of it's about uh, small and projects. Part of it is about subcontracting opportunities on larger projects. But part of it is about, frankly, making sure that um, oftentimes, you know, I, it, and it's not about, you know, it's not about uh, personal prejudice, but it's a realistic reflection on the way that the city is. And in many cases... The reason why minority and women businesses don't get jobs sometimes is not because they're not big enough or don't have the capacity. It's because they don't have the relationships and access. And if you're a contracting officer at a city agency and you're accountable for building bridge X or doing Y or whatever the business is and doing it on time and doing it on budget and doing it at quality, there's a perfectly human tendency to reach out to those businesses that you know the person who did the job five years ago, and ten years ago, and fifteen years ago, and twenty years ago, and that contracting officer is just trying to do a good job. There's no malice or prejudice. But when you do that, you uh, concretize injustice. You, are, you you concretize injustice, if that's the word. You you sort of hold in place all the disadvantage that existed five years ago, and ten years ago, fifteen years ago, and twenty years ago, and you don't create room for new businesses to enter the marketplace. So. Um, It's also about changing culture and holding people accountable a different way, asking questions, uh, making sure that we have processes that force people to look beyond who they're used to doing business with. And so that's a big part of this, too, is driving accountability, and that also uh, its not just about the future. It's about having justice now for people who are ready and willing to do the work uh, but who often don't have the relationships or the trust or the contact or just a knowledge of how to do business with the city which is different than the knowledge of how to do the work.
2: I wanted to ask you about uh, another one of your very extensive list of program responsibilities, Mm -hmm. the Renewal Schools Program, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, modeled to some extent on the community schools you created when you were CEO at the Children's Aid Society. This was to be a three-year program in selected schools that began in 2014 and the three-year evaluation period is up this coming November Um, and as I understand it, we're going to look at how these schools have done and decide which of them should continue and whether any of them should be closed or changed in some way as a result of the program. Um, We are a fiscal watchdog and so I want to uh, note that when the program was started, The estimate was that it would cost about $160 million over three years. And at this point, it's cost, probably depending on how you calculate it, closer to $400 million, and there's also several hundred million dollars included in the budget plans for the coming um, next two years. So could you describe the Renewal Schools Program and explain why the cost has gone up so much? So
0: just to be a little bureaucratic, I'll step back a second because I'm sort of confuse two different concepts, right? So one are the renewal schools, which as you say, is an initiative of the Department of Education to provide support for a set of schools that had persistently failed to achieve the kind of educational outcomes uh, that we as citizens expect and certainly that children deserved, and the mayor and Chancellor Farina made a big commitment to invest in those schools, to try to give those schools and their principals and their teachers a chance to be successful. Also with increased accountability, uh, where the mayor and the chancellor were very clear that after three years, based on what changes they saw in those schools, they would make decisions about which one could be successful. And the idea was, we know that closing schools can be a very traumatic experience for the schools and for the communities. Before taking that extreme step, one to make sure that we did everything we could to give those schools a chance to be successful. And that includes everything from investments in out-of-school time, programming, to uh, extended learning time, to different levels of supports and training for teachers and administrators. The Community Schools is a different initiative, and that's an initiative that I lead, uh, that I help lead. The Community Schools Initiative uh, is really based on the concept that, um, you know, so often in education we think about how to improve education. We are rightfully focused on the teaching side of the equation, right? How do we make... Sure that teachers have the skills they need. How do we make sure that principals have the resources they need? Uh, and in some ways, I like to think of community schools trying to take just as seriously the learning side of the equation. That when a kid shows up at school at eight o'clock in the morning, um, they're not an empty vessel. They bring with them every part of their lives that they were dealing with at seven fifty nine in the morning. So if they were hungry at seven fifty nine, they're going to come to school hungry. If they couldn't see the blackboard at 759 because they have a vision problem, they're going to have that same problem when they show up to school. If they were homeless, if they're depressed. And so what we try to do with community schools is to try to give schools the resources and supports they need to address some of the poverty-related barriers that can stand in the way of children learning. So with our community schools initiative, that is an initiative that goes beyond the renewal schools. Um, but every renewal school is renewal a community. All the renewal schools is a community school, but not every community school is a renewal school. Right. Um, and so my work personally is not so much on the academic side of the renewal school, it's on the, um, the, social, the services social supports. And, supports. Uh, and that's the work that we did at the Children's Aid Society. Um, uh, but it's, uh, and so I guess I would say a few things. Um, you know, on, on one level, I think the power and the value of community schools, um, it would be a mistake to view them solely in terms of what are the academic outcomes that happen on the other end. You know, We, um, just at one data point, point, through our partnership with Warby Parker, we have distributed some 20,000 eyeglasses for free to students um, who needed them. They have a very clear academic value, because I've said before, it's very hard to learn. If you're getting headaches, you can't see what's going on in class. So that offers real value to family that can't necessarily be quantified in your third grade or fourth grade ELA exam. Um, uh, and so a lot of what we're doing in our community schools, I, I think, are what should happen in every school. Like Every school should have an apparatus to support the mental health needs of their students. Every school should have a robust after-school program. Every school should have connections between young people's uh, physical health needs like eyeglasses. Uh, And a strategy to help make sure we tie those students to those needs, Um, especially because school is such a great place to deploy those services, um, uh, because that's where the kids are. So I want to be careful about tying those two things together. Um, But what what I would say is I think that what I would say is what the mayor and and the chancellor promised. Uh, We have seen uh, progress in in, uh, renewal schools as as the chancellor recently announced, we talked about the results on the state uh, math and English test scores. Um, and I think the mayor and the chancellor are still committed to doing a hard review of those schools to see which schools should continue, and the chancellor's already made some hard decisions about consolidating schools where necessary. I know she's going to continue to make those decisions. But we're going to continue our comu- community schools initiative in part because um, those supports that young people need, kids need those supports everywhere. Uh, we initially had a promise to have 100 of these schools. We're gonna be at 200 this fall. Uh, And we're really excited about what we're unleashing in terms of young people's ability to thrive in their school environments. And um, our biggest cheerleaders are the principals and teachers in those schools who talk about what a difference it makes to know um, that when a child is suffering from hunger that you have a partner in the building who knows the child, who can actually help you connect that family to resources. And for principals who don't have that, uh, I think what you would know is that every principal would say um, they would want the resources in their building, regardless of the academic achievement of students in that building.
2: Particularly with respect to the renewal schools, you would think that, in, in both, you would think that with all the enrichment and the extra attention to teacher training, etc., that these would be attractive places and that kids would want to be there and parents would want their kids to be there. But um, I don't know about the rest of the community schools, but with respect to renewal schools, in fact enrollment keeps falling off, which is kind of counterintuitive. Kids leave those schools. Do you have any sense of why that is?
0: No, I, what I would say is that school turnaround is a difficult business and school improvement is a difficult business. If it weren't, um, you know, the world wouldn't look quite the way it does. It's very challenging to do that kind of work and particularly do it at scale. Uh, and so I think what you're seeing is natural. You know, if parents are worried about the performance of a student of a school, um, of course parents are going to look around and try to find opportunities for their children that work and make sense. Um, what we have to do with the city, and I think what our responsibility is, is to continue to do the hard work of making sure that in every neighborhood parent have access to excellent schools um, and a public school system that can do the job for those students. And, That's difficult work. Um, Again, it's not just about the social services, it's about all the things you said. It's about teacher training and after school programs and extended day and attracting strong teachers, um, attracting a diverse group of teachers. And those are all things that we as a city are working on. Um, And uh, I think, you know, I I wish there were a magic switch you could flip to change those dynamics. But I think what we're seeing is that we're seeing really steady and strong progress, and you can see that in the stats. It's also just hard work in the system uh, of so many children and so many schools. So on the
1: MWBE goal, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, there was recently legislation that passed in Albany that you and the administration had really been advocating for uh, around contracting with MWBEs. Can you explain a little bit of that and where that's headed?
0: Sure. One of the challenges we face as a city is that the city did not have some of the tools that the state does and that other agencies like the MTA does in our ability to do business with MWB. So as an example, uh, discretionary spending. The state has a $200,000 discretionary spending limit where they can do procurement without some of the uh, very detailed and complex and challenging rules that are required for contracting. The city's limit is $20,000. So that's one example where we've been advocating very strong with the state. You know, the city pretty sophisticated <laughs> organization, we need the same kind of flexibility. And we were able to get a $150,000 uh, discretionary spending limit in the state bill. Another example is around best value uh, contracting where we uh, received the authority, which we didn't have before, to provide, to install preferences, um, point preferences for respondents to, respondents to RFPs, Uh, that are MWBEs or that have other things that are of value to the city, so strong labor relations practices, other things that are part of what give the contractor value to the city. And and these are all critical because these are tools that allow us to expand opportunity. Uh, Discretionary is a great example because it means that on smaller jobs, we can uh, have competitions and still have competitions, but you can have competition that have less overhead and less they're less difficult for the respondent. But we can focus those competitions on emerging businesses, minority businesses, women businesses. Um, it's a great way of getting money out the door quickly and efficiently. But It's also a great way of seeding some businesses who can maybe have their first taste of being a prime contractor with the city. That can then put them on the path to doing more and more business down the road.
1: And just quickly, that bill is yet to be signed by the governor. Do it, you have it, any indication that he's wavering on it? Or well, look, we, no. We,
0: this has been a, this bill. You know, we had overwhelming support in the assembly. I think with like 115 to 10. I forget the number. Unanimous support in the state senate. Um, uh, so the governor let me repeat sign. that: unanimous support <laughs> in the state senate. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I know that the governor has been a strong supporter of MWBEs and. Uh, we look forward to getting that bill signed. We're already figuring out how to implement it. So
1: you, you mentioned accountability a couple of times. One on mm-hmm. MWBE. Obviously, we're talking accountability on renewal schools. Some actions, as you mentioned already, have been taken. Others, the mayor and the chancellor have said, are upcoming. So uh, on accountability, I mean, I think that's where obviously citizens' Budget Commission, but but others, uh, whether it's in journalism or elsewhere, want to know that if resources are being put somewhere, that results are following otherwise. So Maybe back to the on the mm-hmm. MWBEs. When you say accountability, what does that look like? What does that
0: mean? You say culture change. What do you What are you doing to change the culture? Mm, that's a great question. So um, accountability means a, at least a, at least at least two different things. I would say so. One is accountability for all the city agencies that actually do the work of procuring business. Right. So our new office of MWBE doesn't procure business. Um, individual agencies do. Right. The Think Economic Development Corporation procures business, uh, the Department of Sanitation procures business, uh, DEP procures business. Uh, so you you have all these agencies that have procurement programs. And part of what we're doing is we're trying to strengthen their procurement programs. Uh, so we work with them. It's not punitive. You know, we work with them. We're bringing in support to help them think about how do you make these decisions um, and trying to give them better tools, including making it easier for them to identify MWBEs in the area of the business that they're working in. Uh, and so part of it is giving them the tools they need to be successful. The flip side of that is accountability, right? It's, it's, and so one way that looks is that the mayor and all the deputy mayors, my colleagues, all of whom have agencies that report to them, they get regular quarterly uh, results that show how are the agencies in your portfolio doing here, who is procuring at the highest level, who's not, who's procuring the most business and who's not. Um, what challenges that we face. So part of it is that what I want uh, for the mayor and for the deputy mayors to do is when they're working with one of their agencies, when they're having their regular oversight with one of their agencies that report to them, I need them to think about MWBE procurement as a critical performance indicator just in the way they think about, you know, know, pick your poison depending on the agency. And so that's part of what accountability looks like. It's sort of changing that culture and um, we have regular meetings with all the city commissioners and the agency chief operating, chief contracting officers, as well as the uh, MWBE officers in each agency, where we all come together and we look at each other's data, where we challenge each other to say what's working, what's not working. Where so we- in
1: your portfolio, I don't know, DYCD, mm-hmm. or you would say here's a number, here's your procurement number, what's going on, you know, let's say it's not meeting target, I know that's mm-hmm. becoming rarer and rarer, um, but let's, let's say it's not meeting
0: some sort of target or improvement, what are you saying? So part of what's happening is, so part of it, in anything in city government, what's the what's phrase, uh, if it's not measured, it can't be managed, right? So part of it is the cultural factor. If we don't talk about it regularly, um, people are not gonna look at it and people are not gonna try to make changes. And so that happened in a couple of different ways. One is sort of centrally just in the context of talking about MWBE. So we have a quarterly meeting, wh- which I lead with all city agencies, whether or not they report to me, and with their ECHOs, and with their chief MWBE officers, where we're looking at citywide data for every agency. We're talking about citywide trends. We're pointing out those who are doing well and, and celebrating that and sharing, and, but also criticizing when things are not going well and, and asking so like hard questions. That.
2: Yeah, That's yeah, what we I was going to say. <laughs> it's like comps. Um, yeah.
0: And yeah, the reason why that works. But then also, it's one thing for me to be doing that. That's great. But it also has to happen in your regular line of accountability. Um, because not all of the agencies report to me. And so it's also about giving my fellow deputy mayors the tools and information they need to hold their direct reports accountable in the same way. So that's sort of one dimension. The second thing I want to say, I'll be quick, I know there are other questions, is just For prime contractors, because another way of driving accountability is that when you're a prime contractor uh, and you get a contract with the city, you're also making an agreement and committing to doing a certain amount of business with subcontractors who are MWBEs, and part of it is about driving accountability there as well, Uh, in in both directions. Yeah, generally. So generally, Uh if you have a contract with the city, your contract will have a goal attached to it, and. um, uh, and so part, you know that in the RFP? You know that, and you would negotiate a goal, and you're held accountable for that. And things happen. There are very valid reasons why a general contractor might not be able to achieve a goal. Um, but there has to be accountability there, too. Right? There has to be not a rubber stamp to approve that. We have to have a real dialogue and engagement to understand, well, what did you try to do to hit your target? Um, I have a list of MWE uh, plumbers. Uh, have you called each plumber? Have you given them an opportunity to bid for this business? And that's another dimension in which accountability works.
2: It's the, it, it, that's really the primary value of having a percentage target mm-hmm. is so that it's not just do better. That's right. Do more. You set a specific percentage target, and then you have some metric against which to measure people's intentions and, and what they're doing. It's a lot harder in the school setting because you get right into the controversial discussion about test results, which is a metric, and how much did they go up, and people saying that's not the only criteria from which to measure a school and the school's success, so you have to try to come up with other things, including absenteeism and things generally called school climate. Right. Right? So it's the same effort in another forum to try to have quantifiable measures of how people are improving. That's right.
0: And contextualized, right? So yes. But it's not the whole story. Um, but yes, absolutely. Having a number, having a target, and having real accountability tied to that target is an important tool to move the vast bureaucracy of New York City in, in what is essentially a very decentralized effort because all these city agencies are doing their own procurement, actually driving change in that way. Uh, takes time, and this is one very important tool. Another one is just having the office, right, because what, one function of the office, as you mentioned, is to be an ombudsman. So if you're a subcontractor, you're a prime contractor, you're a bidder, and you don't understand what's happening, you don't feel like you're treated fairly, you have someone to go to and to talk to, uh, to help you engage with the city agency that you have a challenge with, and that's another important function another way in which accountability comes into How play. How many
1: people work in that office about?
0: The small office. I think we're at uh, about six or seven folks now. Um, and it's a mm-hmm. brand new office. Uh, we also work closely with the Department of Small Business Services and the Mayor's Office of Contract Services, both of which have increased staff significantly as a result of our MWB initiative, which all play a role in driving accountability for this work. So you mentioned having a list
1: of... Um, actually, before I get to that, I want to follow up on something else you said. Mm-hmm. When you are looking at your commissioners across all city agencies, are you seeing any different results if agencies are led by women or led by people of color? Are they evidently more focused on moving this goal ahead or is that not a pattern you see?
0: That's a great question. I have not actually looked at agency leadership by race or gender to understand if there is a correlation. Uh, What I'll say is two things. One is I'm very proud to work in an extremely diverse administration with diverse leadership. Uh, That's part of the reason I asked, because the mayor stresses power. that. Yeah, um, no, well, I think, you know, without doing a person-by-person analysis, sure. which I haven't done, I have to believe that when you have a mayor that espouses those values so strongly, and that is manifested in city leadership that looks like the city that we live in, uh, I have to imagine that that means that you have people who are committed to this work differently. What I can say is that white or black, man or women, gender, uh, what have you. Um, what I really see is a real commitment to this work. Uh, and I can say with confidence across city government, this is something that people take seriously. It's not a nuisance, it's not an add on. That people are really struggling with how to do better. Uh, and in some areas, it's easier than others. In some areas, there's a lot more capacity than others. And that's real. Um, there are areas of, of the city where there aren't as many women and minority owned businesses who can do the work as there are in others. And part of the long-term job is to, again, this goes back to what you were asking before about seeding small businesses, is to try to build this, because it really is a marathon and not a sprint.
1: We're in our last two minutes here with mm-hmm. Richard Beery, uh, Deputy Mayor uh, in the de Blasio administration. Uh, I just wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned a list of plumbers. Um, we haven't really named, you know, are there specific sectors? I know construction is typically one where MWB is a, is a big focus. Are there
0: other sectors that are predominant here? It, well, it's every, it's every sector. Certainly construction, because we do a lot of constructions. That's certainly a big one, but it's everything. It's IT. Uh, so um, think about all the different contracting we do in information technology. Uh, you can think of um, uh, communications and PR work and communications and public engagement work. Uh, you, th- It's really, you can think of goods and services, so you know, buying stuff and things, uh, janitorial and security services. It's really every corner of the economy, Um, uh, legal services. So uh, what I would say, you know, people, I mean, I think one of the interesting things when you think about MWE, they're sort of, people often in their minds have a narrow focus, like it's about plumbing and electrician. That's a big part of it, obviously, you want to grow that business. But uh, that $15 billion business you talked about, that encompasses the full scope of the economy. Uh, And that's why we feel that there is opportunity around the full scope of the city because, um if you're a caterer, if you do if you do um, uh, security work, there are opportunities for you in New York City. And part of our job is to make it easy for people to get opportunities.
1: Last question. Uh, and we thank you for, for being here with us. Um, the mayor and one of your deputy mayor colleagues, Alicia Glenn, and mm-hmm. she joined us recently on the podcast, so folks should listen to that episode for more on on the recent announcement of the jobs plan and the affordable housing plan. But um, they rolled out this, this, house, uh, this jobs plan, sorry, uh, with this big goal of 100,000 jobs uh, that pay $50,000 or more. Were you brought mm-hmm. into those conversations? Was there a conversation with you about MWBEs where they said, how are we looking at a jobs plan here and also um, overlapping with our MWBE goals?
0: Yeah, because I think part of the goal, again, just to step back and how I started the conversation, it's about opportunity. Um, that's opportunity through employment, opportunity through education, and opportunity through uh, the ability to live your best entrepreneurial life and to contribute to the life of the city by being an entrepreneur. Uh, and so as a team, we think about all these things in tandem, and there are different pieces to it, whether it's around housing development education, uh, a really ambitious jobs plan, or MWB plan, but they're all trying to get to the same thing. And I think we do a really good job of working as a team to try to figure out how these things complement each other. MWE is a perfect example. It's truly an interdisciplinary effort because every deputy mayor uh, runs shops, that is involved in procurement, uh, and sometimes those things, as I said before, can can feel like you're butting heads a little bit because you know you at the same time you're trying to get a job done as quickly and as cheaply as possible, uh, while at the same time making sure that you're achieving equity goals. But what's good about having a team is that we can work together and respect everybody's perspectives and try to come up with good compromises and good solutions to achieve all those goals. And I think we're moving in the right direction. All right.
1: Well, a lot, lot more to talk with you about, but we'll leave it there for, for now. We appreciate the time. Uh, Deputy Mayor Richard Bury, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you all so much. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Carol. And for, for Carol Kellerman, yeah.
2: Fun. I, enjoy, I enjoyed it. I look forward to doing more. And in, I'll end the same way Maria has been ending. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>